tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. Elvis, MLK, heroin, and In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a special daytime version of This Is Final Tap. If we sound less weary than usual, it's because it is the middle of the day. The sun is out. Well, the clouds are out. And it is daytime. I'm joined here with our uh, famous producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. And Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, J.M. I didn't <laughs> intend for you to say anything. Um, and we're also here with Tony Haleystein. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Tony. I uh, got that wrong again. <laughs> you did, Doug. I mean, Doug. Uh, yeah. Tony uh, hey. Slagle. Yes. Uh, hi, everybody. We're very excited this evening because we're moving forward all the way to 1984. We have a uh, unforgettable album oh, by a uh, remarkable band. Ladies and gentlemen, Unforgettable Fire by the Irish rock band U2. Uh, this came out in October of 1984, and I guess it could be a pick of any one of us. I think uh, I would probably have been the last one to choose it, uh, but this is a Tony pick, and I'm going to go straight to Tony to find out. Tony, how did you decide that this was going to be your pick for this week? Well, uh, we've talked before when we talked about rem about kind of where i was at this point in my life i was uh knee deep in metal and uh i heard driver eight on the radio and that kind of changed my perspective and my musical life uh musical musical trajectory i guess and uh this album was very very much the same thing it it changed the musical trajectory for a very young tony um and i realized there was other stuff out there that uh was tuneful and interesting and uh and this album just grabbed me by the lapels and shook me when i heard it the first time uh as my normal mo it's an album that is i think stands out from the band's discography i don't think there's another album in u2's discography that sounds like this one 
Um, I think the three that came before it were very guitar oriented. I think the one after it is more guitar oriented than this, but um, I, I think this is very unique. I don't know how you, if you guys agree with me or not. I think this is very unique in terms of their sound. Um, it's much less straightforward. It's more atmospheric and experimental sounding, if I can say that. Mm -hmm. um, and it just, uh, it's an album that I revisit every year. For some reason, it's um, in my psyche, in my mind, it's a winter album. I can't listen to this album in the summer. It, it needs to be cold. I need to be able to see my breath. I need to feel the, the frigid air about me. Um, I don't know why that is, but I feel that way. So it's, it's a goofy tradition of mine, but every year, the first night before, um, the first night of true winter, i.e. below freezing, I pull this album out and I listen to it. I sit outside and listen to it. <laughs> well, it's very appropriate for uh, it is right now. Uh, Tony, do you have an album for the fall from YouTube? <laughs> I don't i don't have any other seasonal albums for them it's very well, strange they do have an album called october that might well, be appropriate <laughs> I, you know it's funny uh when you mentioned this was released i think we're all four album their first four albums all released in october this one was released uh september 30th oh, i thought I, I thought doug said october well that's uh what i have um i'm sorry uh <laughs> I'm just reading. No, well, I think it was. Yeah. I'm just reading liner notes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, before we proceed any further, uh, we have all been here before. Uh, Connections, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. We're going to put our two, our co-host and our uh, producer, through the ringer by asking them, "Where has this podcast encountered some of these characters before?" Uh, how many can y'all think of on this record? Well, well the obvious. The, go ahead, yeah. Jim. Well, the obvious is the co-producer uh, Daniel. We've talked about him a couple of times with the Daniel Peter who? Lanois. Lanois. Uh, he's a French Canadian. He's a French. We've. Uh, Which gives me a chance to thank all our Canadian fans out there. Yeah, uh, we've also briefly talked about the. Uh, the other producer, the main producer on this album, Brian Eno, he was actually on that Peter Gabriel album that we uh, reviewed. Um, Daniel Lanois was also fundamental in uh, that Amy Lou Harris podcast that we did. So, um, yeah, there's we Hunt fundamental in in terms of being half of the album, at least. Yeah, the uh, Chrissy Hines sings backup on one of the songs on this album. And yeah. we talked about the pretenders and Christy Hind yeah. from the pretenders. Yes. Yeah. Um, Steve Lillywhite produced these, this band before this album. We've talked about Steve Lillywhite. Yeah. And, and he produced some of the stuff after. Yeah. Um, uh, any, anything else? Digital <laughs> delay is all over this album. We've talked about that in previous, in a previous podcast. And one of the things, this is another album without a Mellotron on it. So I think <laughs> <laughs> this is two now. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Tony, uh, you, you picked a, a very popular and a very um, important album. Uh, I, I can remember this was my freshman year of college and uh, it was a dominant album on everything on radio Uh I think every college student sat in their room listening to this, con contemplating how deep and spiritual they were. Yeah. Uh, 
JM, tell us, you mentioned the two producers on this album. Uh, in my mind, choosing these two guys to produce your album is cheating. Uh, they're <laughs> well, so good. Yeah, I, I, I think just I, I think it's important to, uh, to just note that this was a, ch- a huge change of, of direction for a, them. It was pretty much a sea change for yeah. Them, yeah. they had, as we mentioned earlier, he they had worked with Steve Lilly White on their first three <laughs> albums and they really liked war. They were really happy with the way war came out. But what they were um, afraid of is that they were going to if they kept working with Steve Lilly White, they were going to have basically war too. They didn't really want to sound, they didn't want to repeat themselves. And I think that Jimmy, I mean, um, uh, Steve Lillywhite was also getting a little, he was getting a little tired of trying to uh, tinker with their sound and that U2 was trying to, they, they just wanted to do something completely different. They, and so, so that they even wanted to get away from their recording studio, Windmill Studios, where they had recorded their first three albums they were actually just before they started doing anything, they started looking for a new place to record. And so they found a place called Slain Castle after they'd looked at a couple of cathedrals and some other places. Really, a it was built in the 18th century um, and it was built by a lord of some sort. And he had a the, the rooms were huge, but the two rooms that most of the recording for this album were done in were in a, uh, the library and in the uh, grand ballroom. Is that the, the, is that the castle on the cover? Yeah. And the, that app, that's actually the, the, uh, they took all the photographs for the album at that castle. Yeah. So they, they rented it out and, uh, stayed there for, I, I, not too long, but they stayed there for a few weeks. And that's where they did their recording, but we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit with that because the, in addition to wanting to have a different sound and more of an atmospheric, bigger sound is what they were going for. They were trying to find a producer they thought could kind of propel them in this, this direction. And so they first, one of the guys they looked at was a guy named Rhett Davies, who uh, was a producer for Roxy music. They also looked at another guy with um, who had produced can and craft work guided by the name of Connie Plank. Um, so they were, those meetings didn't go anywhere. And then the, the edge heard, uh, some music by, um, Brian Eno and was just, especially he liked the stuff he'd heard with the talking heads. And he said, well, you know, let's see if, if Eno would be up for working with us. Well, Eno at the time, he, he was familiar with U2 and he wasn't really all that excited about their sound. He thought they were a little too guitar oriented. So, well, and the label wasn't interested in having him produce the band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause they thought they'd had something going. They, you know, they got that the war album was a, a pretty huge success and it had just, you know, the guitars were prominent in that, you know, with the, um, New Year's Day, which is like that does have a, just a real easy piano part on it, but then um, Sunday, Bloody Sunday. I can't believe the news today. Oh, I can't close my eyes and make it go away. How long? How long must we sing this? 
that guitar riff in it. And they were looking for something that was more along that, that sound, but you too, was just like, uh, uh-uh, uh, we don't, we don't want to re- try to repeat ourselves. Um, and so they sat down with Brian Eno and Eno said, you know, he kind of, they talked him into it and Eno said, okay, I'll produce it. Um, but at the time Eno had also been working with this guy by the name of Daniel Lanois. Um, they first got together for the Dune soundtrack. They actually uh, created a song for uh, one of the scenes in, in Dune, which was probably the best part of that adaptation of Dune. <laughs> I thought Toto did the soundtrack to that album. Toto I mean- did the soundtrack, but um, yeah, Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois did one of the one of the pieces for it. Huh. So I they like enjoyed. The, I like the uh, navigators that were cuttlefish. I thought that was the best. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they uh, it, Lanois had kind of uh, made a name for himself uh, producing bands in Canada. He created a an, a studio with his brother, um, and you can go back and listen to more about Daniel Lanois's history in in uh, the, the Peter Gabriel podcast and the Emmylou Harris podcast. But he had gained kind of a reputation of, of having just kind of a, making bands sound bigger than they actually were. He had worked with his sister's band called Martha and the Muffins, and they had created a pretty, they had a pretty successful uh, album that he and his brother produced and Daniel Lanois played on. So Enos invited Lanois to, con- to collaborate with him and his brother, Roger, on a uh, a soundtrack that for a movie that was coming out about the Apollo space missions or uh, moon flights, the movie has its own history, but they wrote songs by watching a film of uh, astronauts in space and and on the moon. And so it it came out, it's a pretty, if you get a chance to it, it's a pretty, I hope maybe one of these days we could actually do a a podcast on that particular album, but it's, it's a pretty fascinating, sounding album. Eno liked working with Lanois so much, he kind of wanted to do another project with him. And so he, when you two approached he said, hey, I'm going to bring in this guy, Daniel Lanois. He's a great mixer. He's also a good musician himself. Um, help engineer this. Well, it turned out that Lanois did more than just engineer it. He actually started doing some of the, the production work on it. Uh, Eno would famously kind of just say, hey, I'm going to go take off for a little while and let Lanois just kind of uh, take over the production duties. And um, Lanois actually wound up playing some of the guitar on it as well. So, well, um, I, I heard that uh, when they were producing this, they all had their little stations and mm-hmm. they all had their guitars and their keyboards at their little stations. And uh, I was I don't know how to find out who's playing what on on this. Yeah. Who's who outside of the U2 uh, is is playing this. Um, and, and someday we yeah. will do that, Apollo. Uh, album and that'll be an excellent opportunity for everybody to uh, see if their iPhone uh, works <laughs> and if they have their uh, play at twice the speed uh, works on their uh, podcast. <laughs> 
So anyway, going back to, to Brian, you know, just real quick on him. He was a founding member of, of Roxy Music. If you want to find a lover, then you look no further. For I'm gonna be your- if you ever see out, um, outtakes of Brian Eno when he was his days with Roxy Music, he's wearing feather boas. He's wearing uh, glittery clothes. He's he he uh, he's he looked like something out of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Eno left Roxy Music because he and Brian Ferry weren't getting along. They didn't. He. Brian Eno thought that Brian Ferry had too much control over the band and he was trying to look to do something on his own. He started working with Robert Fripp on uh, an album and that became No Pussy Footing, which is known for inventing something called Frippertronics. basically guitars stacked on top of each other through echo plexes and tape delays and all sorts of different things. Uh, he also started getting a name for himself as a producer. And so he started working first of all with Ultravox. Um, and then he caught the attention of David Bowie. He did three albums with David Bowie uh, called the Berlin trilogy. Um, the song heroes, that's basically the stamp of, 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 uh, Brian Eno, right there. And he started working with the Talking Heads, I think three or four of their albums. Brian Eno has a reputation of sort of letting a band play and then he kind of takes over and just adds all sorts of special effects and loops and thing. He kind of takes over the band sound and the, and the talking heads really weren't enjoying the direction that Brian, you know, was taking them. Seems like his acolyte might've learned a thing or two about that as well. <laughs> da- Daniel Lenoir, I think also tends to do that. Yeah. Yeah. They kind of well, take over an album, sound. a band sound. Now, Tony, uh, you remember J.M. warned us that he wasn't going to have much to say about the producer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And and for those of you who joined us uh, less than 30 (laughs) minutes ago, we're we're reviewing an album by the band U2. Tony, uh, where did the name U2 come from? Well, uh, that's a good question. They originally started their career in 76 when uh larry mullen jr posted an ad in a mount temple high school paper looking for other people in a band so adam clayton was i think the first to join and then the edge and then paul hewson or bono um they started as a band called feedback um and then they later changed their name to the hype and then they changed their name uh, about a year later at the edge's brother was actually in the band he left and they changed their band to u2 
band name to U2 because they wanted to have something that didn't sound like all the other bands out there and something that sounded a little mysterious. It's the name of a spy plane as well. I don't know how much of them. Yeah. Uh, and over Russia, Gary Powers was uh, captured. And, and uh, what I've always heard is named after the unemployment form in Ireland. Oh, that may be. Yeah, maybe right. Huh. I didn't see that. But thank you for adding that. I, I think I think it's worth mentioning just kind of their prior three albums. Uh, well, I guess EP three albums and the live album, because this is such a departure. It's worth just touching base on some of that stuff because they were such a guitar oriented band. But oddly enough, their guitarist is not that i mean in my opinion not that great of a guitarist not someone you would necessarily want to orient around i yeah i I like to call i like to call the edge i instead of a lead guitarist i think he's a lead texturizer if that makes sense he's a a soundscape yeah Yeah. and 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 that's not to not it's not to knock him what he brings works i mean that first album boy uh has it is a fantastic album When I think of uh, the first three albums, I think, has any band in history made records this good with less talent? <laughs> yeah, maybe. And, and I mean, technical talent. I'm not I'm not talking about I'm, I'm going to go on and on about Bono's ability to he's a master of melodies. And I uh, but I just think of those first three albums, all uh, of which I loved intensely yeah. when i was uh, in high school uh, mm-hmm. the difference i would say the ramones but the difference between you two and the Ro- ramones are you two all three of these albums are are significantly different even though they're all guitar guitar oriented right boy october and war are different than each other in a way that mm-hmm. the first three ramones albums are not <laughs> um i mean yeah uh, i mean it, they 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 do have such limited ability um you know i don't think bono is a great singer uh, you know the edge is not uh, by any stretch of the imagination a great guitar player um well, we, I, the rhythm section is yeah I, I think, uh, that's the strength and we talked before we started especially especially the drummer uh, Larry Mullins yeah. Jr. is is kind of the standout mu- musician in the band. But yeah, so uh, yeah, I love that first U2 album. October obviously is, it, it's funny, I was thinking about this. So October comes out and that's a very earnest sounding album compared oh, to yeah. Boy. Um, and then War is where U2 finds its strident streak. That's one of, if that's not the most strident album uh, ever made I, it's got to be in the top three <laughs> yeah i mean it's all it's all attitude it's all preachy it's all pointing its finger at the audience mm-hmm. um yeah. mm-hmm. it's which space is, aliens coming to tell humans all that's wrong with them but yeah. but what's funny about that is that does not carry forth on this album this album is not preachy in that way it's not well, it's it, I, don't you think that he quit making uh lyrics uh that were as 
it's clear Point, pointed. Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely. Yeah. It's, I think that the, I mean, that's the one thing you can say about the unforgivable fire is, and I think Bono even said this someplace in an interview that I saw that this, these are, these songs are more sketches than anything else. They're very, the lyrics match the music in the sense that there's nothing, you can't really pin, pin anything on this album yeah. down. Well, you know? I, I think yeah. of the lyrics as um, stream of consciousness to the point that they're almost a list. But um, um, yeah, I think you're right. I, I just real briefly, I think we've got to talk about under a blood red sky because that was this live uh, EP that came out at red rocks. At, yeah. That was, well, the, the video, the live video was filmed at red rocks. The EP was filmed at, uh, at Boston in Boston, Germany and red rocks as well mm-hmm. in Colorado. But um, it's a marks the end of an era for that band. When that album came out, that was sort of wrapping up with their Steve Lillywhite uh, mm-hmm. phase. Jimmy Iovine, Iovine yeah. uh, produces that album, um, mm-hmm. and it and and as you mentioned, uh, Doug, there's a live concert video uh, that got significant airplay on a very young MTV at the time, and uh, like a lot of things on MTV, it gained this band a following beyond what they might have otherwise gotten um, from just uh, the radio yeah. airplay from it. But it's it's fantastic, and it ends with them singing the song 40 Yeah, and the crowd the singing band, with it yeah. and the, the crowd, crowd is the crowd singing with it and that was a song that they that they played the end of their show with for a long time. It's one of those songs. It's one of those songs that uh, um, developed a, a different reputation played live than it did on the album. It's a great song on, mm-hmm. on the album, but who hearing it live. Um, I don't know who did write the lyrics. Psalm 40. Oh, oh yeah. Psalm 40. Well, um, thank you, Doug. Who wrote Psalms 40? That's uh, that'll lead us down a <laughs> path with a lot of combat involved, but uh but yeah, so so that that album, that live EP wraps up that Steve Lillywhite uh, thing. And as we've talked about, when they were looking for something a little bit different, they, as JM mentioned, they go go a different route with different producers. I think Jimmy Iovine thought thought the album was so good that he was expecting to get a call for him for him to produce their next album. What became the Unforgettable well, Fire? I am not a super big. Uh, no offense, Jam, a super big Brian Eno fan. I know he's got his his thumbprints on all sorts of stuff I like. Um, but man, am I happy that he got involved with this band because <laughs> I love this album. But I remember uh, I started forcing people to listen to them like I always do, and uh, people it was really startling new sound. Uh, there there weren't people didn't really know what to do with it. Um, yeah. And then uh, when the war tour came out, I was able to see them at an outside venue. And I was, I don't know what row I was on, but I was close enough that when Bono jumped into the crowd, his uh, armpit landed on my hand. 
And <laughs> I was thinking, this is so awesome. I'm, uh, this, this, and then I went, wait, gross. Did you use deodorant? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think this is before that stage where he started not bathing or whatever not he bathing. was doing yeah. to, uh, love the earth more or something. I don't remember that part, but yeah. I did, uh, I did have a very close, a love affair with those first albums and, uh, a little bit with this one, but not very much, not, not like yeah. you guys. Well, you, yeah. and, and the thing I forgot to mention was this band even though they're, uh, I want to say, I'll use the term unsophisticated musically when they started out, um, yeah. had something they, you know, they, they won a talent contest in 78, which is how they ended up getting their, their music, uh, or they're getting signed initially. Uh, at, they won uh, on St. Patrick's day of all, all places uh, or all times they won this music contest. And one of the, um, one of the judges was, uh, was, involved with cbs records in ireland and signed them for their first demo session they they out of the gate sort of started making some noise in, in a yeah. way uh that was pretty impressive for again a band that isn't very musically sophisticated they were able to take whatever they had in terms of uh, talent well, and 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 everything and create something that that hit people right between the yeah. eyes and that's one of the things I want to say about them. I mean, they, I think they almost embraced their limitations probably more than just about any other band, especially at this time. Um, I, I don't think Bono, when I think of a limitations embracer, I don't think of Bono whatsoever. I, you don't I think, think so? Bono is the most confident human being. Okay. Uh, yeah, but I, I think they do more within the confines of their... I don't know. I mean, to me, I don't, I don't, Bono almost um, always surpri is surprising himself when he's singing. Um, I, I think Bono, he reminds me of that little boy that scares off the bad guy and he find, he doesn't know yeah. that there's a huge guy with yeah. a gun behind him. Okay. <laughs> I've got this perfect segue for my joke. I've got, okay. a bon I've got a Bono joke. So I went to see a band that I've recommended on this podcast before in 1989 called The Grapes of Wrath. And, uh, it was a very intimate show. And in the middle of the show, the lead singer tells a joke and I'm going to tell it like he did. So he mispronounces Bono's name, which I think is funny. He goes, um, okay. So this guy, uh, this big music fan dies and he goes to heaven and he gets up to heaven and he notices there's a monster music festival going on up in heaven and everybody's jamming with everybody else. You've got Janis Joplin jamming with Beethoven and Hendrix jamming with Mozart and all these people are jamming around. So he goes over to the stand and gets a beer and he's walking around. He's enjoying himself and he sees Bono walk by and he thinks <laughs> Bono Bono was alive the last time I was. What happened? So he sees St. Peter leaning up against the gate and he goes over to St. Peter and he goes, Hey, St. Peter, can I ask you a question? And St. Peter's like, sure, man, what's up? And he goes, I just saw Bono walk by. And last time when I was alive, he was still alive. What, what happened? How did Bono die? And St. Peter goes, no, 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 no. You don't understand. That's not, that's not Bono. That's God. He just thinks he's Bono. <laughs> <laughs> there's the joke <laughs> i think that kind of sums up a little bit of what i was trying to say <laughs> exactly <laughs> i think um i and i gotta tell you i uh i think he can be among the most ridiculous people on earth and yeah. i also think that he his accomplishments are a direct result of that huge belief he has in himself and what he's doing and yeah. uh 
I think this album, I, I, I view this as a transition album between what they were doing and what they were trying to do. I, I, I see that. I, see I think that. this album demonstrates him stretching like few people are willing to do in front of the world. Now, I, I don't want that joke to come across that I dislike Bono because I don't. Um, I, in fact, I'm very, very impressed by he's one of the few uh, people who I think has grown tremendously in his outlook on the world in a way that's mm-hmm. that's very impressive. Like he's not some guy who just says, oh, this is the way my worldview is and I'm going to stick with it throughout the rest of my life, i.e. Yeah. Uh, Michael Stipe. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and it's like my line, I know. Um, and it's impressive, but I agree with you. This is a transitional album. Um, but that's not to, that's not to, um, marginalize it. It's, it's also, it holds itself up as unlike anything again, like I said, and unlike anything they did before or since, um, or anything mm -hmm. anybody else does. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it, it really it's it's bizarre because in some ways it's almost like it's not it's an album full of incomplete songs and again i don't mm-hmm. mean that as a knock it's just it's so atmospheric and the songs there's one song and we'll get to it when we talk about it, there's one song that stands out that i think the album would be better off without it's a great song but it doesn't fit the rest of the album atmospherically and um and i think it it uh it always pulls me out of the album um, huh. when it comes on again, okay. I, I don't think there's a song on this album. I dislike, but there's just is one song that I think just atmospherically doesn't, doesn't, it, it feels a little bit more like what they did prior or what I they were going to do afterwards. When, when I compare this album to uh, Joshua tree, I, I see Joshua, Joshua tree as the finished product. Yeah. Or yeah. the one piece of pottery they finally got right and fired yeah. and it polished and 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 a very well, think well every, done yeah. album even everybody though was i may like the songs on this album better i, I, like the I feel like sometimes. they were more actualized on i, Joshua Tree. I, I don't disagree with you i don't disagree with you at all well, this I, is this not is gonna my, be fun then tony this is my <laughs> favorite u2 album but i agree with you joshua tree is much more of a complete uh well, I think everybody they're going to do. I think everybody was hitting their stride on the Joshua Tree. The the sounds are so much crisper. Um, Bono they, has has finally, I think, achieved what he was trying to do with his voice. Yeah, yeah. I agree. With or without you. And, and it's um, and it's also, if I can say this, Eno and Lenoir uh, figure out what to do with this band in a way yeah. that they're still kind of poking around and experimenting on this album, which to me makes this album more interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, but the, yeah, it's a perfect phrase, more fully realized. Joshua Tree is 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 yeah. uh, unforgettable fire, more fully realized. Yeah, this it, it's this interesting. Album. This is a stepping stone from one sound to another which makes it yeah. sound like you might want to just breeze past it. And that's right. absolutely not true. Absolutely right. not true. Yep. This was the first album where I 
where I, cause it was such a, a marked difference between war and this, cause I had war and loved it. And then I heard this album, the, the difference was so uh, pronounced that I, this is the first time I just went, why is this sounding different? What, what makes this different? And that's the first time I saw that, Oh, Steve Lillywhite produced war. Brian, who's this Brian, Eno? who's this Eno Lenoir duo and that they've got to be the ones that are making this album sound different. So that's, I was just when you learn to talk um, about producers. producers. Yeah. I, uh, you I was just that the, very well, JM. I was just the opposite. <laughs> when I heard this album and I went back and revisited U2's uh, discography prior to this, I was like, why don't they sound like this album? I, yeah. It kind of threw me for a loop. I didn't quite, I, I, yeah. I liked the songs, but they were so distinctly different. I didn't quite get it. You know, yeah. the reviews for this album were, were good. Uh, four stars from all music, the Austin Chronicle. If you want to know, uh, who not to vote for the Austin Chronicle is a good source for that. Um, they gave it four and a half Chicago Tribune. Didn't like it very much It's three and a half um, B plus from entertainment weekly Rolling Stone gave it three Rolling Stones album guide gave it four and a half. So yeah. Rolling Stone is the most inconsistent year to year of anybody. I think I know. Um, and you, you should never trust their initial opinion. Almost never. I, I don't even know if they still have a magazine. The last time I saw it, it was three pages long um, and much smaller. So the first song on this album uh, is Sort of Homecoming. Sort of a hit. Later. I, yeah, Later. I think I think I think a, there's a big chunk of this album that got, uh, you know, we were just starting to get out of album oriented rock at this point in terms mm -hmm, of the radio mm -hmm. format. So yeah. a lot of these songs were still being pulled off of the LP and played, even though they weren't released as singles. This is one of those songs that got airplay. Yeah, and they did a live version of it. That became... That's the one that really took off with right. the live yeah, version. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. Uh, under a blood red sky. Is that the uh... no? No, that's on... the that's the no, album there's, that. This is there's uh, an EP... wide awake in America. Yeah, wide awake in America. America. That's it right. came after this. Um, yeah, this is a. I think it's a good way to kind of introduce the new sound that you uh, yeah, was I, was going for. Um, it's got that that cool drumming part. And there's, this, this is one thing I want to say about the drumming on this. Um, Larry Mullen Jr. was looking to make his drums sound different. And one of the things Brian Eno said, well, why don't you just like not use cymbals as much? And so that's where he developed this style where he actually plays a tom, like, or a, a sometimes it's a tom, sometimes it's a, a separate snare, like a hi-hat. And then he'll play uh, just a regular snare um, on the downbeat. But it's if you ever watch, he's kept that that drum set for the rest of his, you know, throughout the rest of his career. So he hardly ever he doesn't play hi hats very often when he plays drums. And so this is this is a really good example of that. How he starts playing on this song, um, the drums that come in are just. I mean, it's the first one of the first things that caught my attention on this album was when I heard this those drums just going, man, this is going to be a different album. Yeah. This, uh, this, um, song Bono, I don't know if you guys know this Bono re-recorded his vocals for it at the last minute. Yeah. He, he was in a, 
Daniel Lanois was on his way out the door. The taxi the was waiting for him. Yeah. <laughs> when Bono decided that they they wanted to re-record this. Um, it's also uh I was telling you guys before the podcast, there's a uh Gabriel, Peter Gabriel's vocals are buried in the mix. There's a version of this that was released when they re-released the album. Uh, remastered it um, that Lanois remixed the song significantly more upbeat. It sounds like Biko in a lot of ways, a Peter Gabriel song. It's got yeah. kind of an African flavor to it. And mm. Gabriel's vocals are pulled up in the mix significantly. I mean, if I played it for you, you'd be like, that's the same song. It doesn't sound like the same song at all. It's it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, there's a um, evidently a Romanian German Jewish poet that um during the time oh, of his, mm. yeah, during this time, he was interred in the in uh, in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. Uh, he was talking about poetry, and he said, and he s- describes poetry as a sort of homecoming. Oh. Um, so that's a nice anyway. story. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I love those those chiming, you know, swelling guitars that that come in through in this song. Um, it, another thing, another time I'd never heard guitars sound like that. You know, technology, music technology at this time was just exploding. I mean, you had digital synthesizers, you had stuff that Ebo was becoming coming out, and you had you know, the uh, digital delays and the echo flexes and all those those things coming out. And more and more bands were just embracing that technology. A lot of those bands just fell on their ass when they were uh, using those things. You know, they just kind of it started controlling them. One of the things I love about this album is there a lot of that technology is being used, but it seems like they can control it so so much. Even though there's a spont- spontaneous element to this, um, there's you know, and Eno's the, the best guy in the world at capturing spontaneity. Well, I think he encouraged this band to do that. There's a lot yeah. of ad libbing on these songs that I don't mm-hmm. think would have Steve Lilly White would have. Uh, yeah. Steve Lillywhite likes every. Steve Lillywhite is not one to to uh, you know, experiment. I, I I often felt I often, when I was younger I always wondered if the I know this is a dumb thing to say but I always it always seemed to me like the Edge must have listened to Run Like Hell by Pink Floyd over yeah. and over and over and over again <laughs> because that's the first song I remember ever hearing that had yeah. that kind of you know yeah. guitar delay thing going on that he yeah. seems to have embraced and mm-hmm. and moved forward but. Anyway. And tell us about the effects on the edge's guitar because uh I think that um it's it's hard for me to imagine the edge doing an acoustic version of all of these numbers <laughs> and yeah. there being much left. And also uh it's we've talked about him being a fairly limited uh guitar player, but he is not at all limited on his influence on on the world of yeah. uh, rock yeah. and roll. He's oh, had just think of it. Yeah. enormous influence, and I think a lot of that is the intelligent way that he uh, worked in in these uh, effects. Well, I mean, you, you just got that's his the atmospherics that he's able to conjure. I mean, are just remarkable. So he's using it a lot of times using a digital delay. A lot of these songs he's using um, an ebo, which you can, and then there's parts where he's actually sliding a guitar. Uh, um, a like a, a slide over the the pickups of his guitar so that gives it this sort of uh with the delay on it gives it these these kind of clicking effects that are that go on there but he is so good at creating these sort of uh swelling sounds which is done with a usually with a volume knob or a, a volume pedal 
and a digital delay. And he makes just these chiming, uh, swelling sounds that just, again, I don't know that anybody has ever really been able to reproduce without, you know, with, um, to any sort of satisfaction. Well, I was uh, listening to Beato talk about the edge. Uh, we've talked about, uh, Beato's, uh, program on YouTube, which is, uh, huge and very good. Uh, he was talking about how the edge is playing some of what the drummer plays in concert. And I, I found that really interesting. He said that uh-huh. he takes over some, not necessarily on this song. I, I'm not sophisticated enough to understand when he does it and when he doesn't. But he said that uh, the edge will play something on the album that the hi-hat will take over uh, in concert. Huh. And I just well, found that fascinating. Well, yeah, that's yeah. that's what I meant early when I was talking about the textures. Is That's what he does so that's well right. is, yeah. is add yeah. these layers of sound to a to a... Even early on, even the earlier yeah. albums, he did that yeah. so well. He's just really, really good at that. I, and, and I got to thank the Inwaf coming in right now. Yeah, I've had really to have that. been a profound influence on his getting to this. That maybe they influenced mm-hmm. each other. I don't know, but yeah. I, I think that was a fortuitous thing that he popped yeah. in. Yep. Yeah. There's this other song that comes next, <laughs> and it's called pride in the name of love and i think it bears pointing out that uh pride had different connotations maybe then than it does now um um so this is a song i was talking about that i don't think fits on this album very well i can almost I, see that i've, yeah. I've never it felt this inside the banks a, a lot yeah. more than it's, it's, almost and, and again i don't want that to sound like i don't like this song because i do although it's one of those songs i've heard so often i i don't it's, have to that's hear a it problem again. uh yeah. especially when you get to be old farts like we are but uh but it it sounds it does not sound like anything else on this album yeah uh, it's, you know, it's almost, it has a cool intro like every song no, it's, in the album it's, yeah. it's it's a great song and you know what it reminds me of a lot is bolt the blue sky on um on uh joshua, joshua tree because that song also doesn't sound like anything else on that album both of these yeah. songs kind of jump out as being much more straightforward this is the most straightforward song on this album Mm -hmm. in terms of just structure well i've got a question for you Uh uh-huh what does the number 378 do for you i didn't think you would get that this is number 378 on rolling stone's all-time 500 greatest songs (laughs) really yeah um, well, I think it's I think it's a fine song. I mean, I I, uh, I don't think it's the best that, one on the album at all. Do, do we? No, but but with that being said, can we can we all agree? Maybe we don't need to agree on this. That this is the one song. If you were kind of to talk to a generic rock and roll fan, this is the song that people think of when they think of you two. I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, this song. Yeah, I, I do think this is a, probably their most well known song. Um, it's a it's a good song, and it one of the reasons it stands it out on this album is you have some idea what they're talking about. <laughs> well, it's yeah, it's about it's about Martin Luther King specifically, but just 
anybody like that who kind of give of themselves in the quote name of love in general. Um, uh, yeah, it's I, yeah. again. So Chrissy Hines on this song, we talked yeah. about that briefly. Can y'all She's, hear her? No, no, I can't. What's the point? That's, this happens all the time. <laughs> I don't think yeah. she's. I don't think she's given credit as. She's not credited as Chrissy Hines in the liner. No, notes, she's like Mrs. Carr or something. She was married yeah. to the James um, Carr at the time. I think so. This uh, this album was hit number two in Ireland, and it was. I don't know where it, it was in the top ten in both the UK and the US, but I don't know where. It was a monster hit for them. Yeah. yeah. Bono introduces us to his. I don't use all the words. <laughs> uh, the one that stands out for me is uh, I have seen. Uh, what is it? I have seen uh, highest. I've climbed highest mountain. <laughs> um, and on here is one man come and go. Yeah. Uh, he leads out. He, he does that. That became a, uh, a thing for him. That Yeah. Uh, anyway, Bono is against uh bad people and for good people <laughs> it's the it's the guy on the barbed wire fence uh any idea who that is is that it reminds me of someone storming normandy but i don't know i don't know but i have i know who was betrayed with a kiss yeah yeah who would that be <laughs> <laughs> did he come in the name of love yeah. he did and uh Inspired yeah, other be, guys that were shot yeah. in Memphis. Well, you know that Bono is a on April fourth, but not yeah. early morning April fourth. No, yeah, it was. It was the afternoon. <laughs> it was not early morning. <laughs> oh, maybe it's not Martin Luther King. Uh, yeah, it's another it guy that got shot that nobody knows about. <laughs> That's right. That wasn't in the morning at all. No, it was not. No. Oh, well, That's okay. How much stuff do we it's get poetic. wrong about Ireland? I mean, we better stop. <laughs> yeah. Probably, somebody's probably got a whole podcast on things we got wrong about Ireland. <laughs> That's right. I don't know. Don't you think, like. don't you think people, you know, hearing that song, bought this album, put it on, and goes and thought, where's the rest of the songs like this? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was expecting it too. I, I mean, uh, I, I, I think I, that I'll, I think, um, it's a tight little package and nothing else is. But I think well, I thought all the it, other songs are really accessible. Well, this song sounds like it could have come off war. And I think uh, that I, I remember that's why I bought it because this, the single came out. And then I remember the day, I think I went to the mall the day this album came out and bought it. I mean, I was listening. See, to I, I, came, I came to this by, um, I was a friend of mine. Uh, Kevin O'Brien was a big U2 fan. So I heard this album in its entirety having never because like i said i was in a heavy metal at the time having never really heard uh, maybe heard this song once or twice but i came to this album much differently so that may be why i feel the way i do about this song uh, th this song does not seem like it fits on this album uh yeah. I, it sounds more like a joshua tree album to me i, I agree I was agree. it one of the last ones they did or was it early? I, I don't remember. Well, they released it. This was released before the album was. Oh, okay. So I don't know. Anyway, uh, I think that's interesting that we all agreed on that aspect yeah. of it. Yeah. Up next, Wire.
if I'm correct, this is not about the uh, exciting uh, miniseries that came out that everybody went goo goo for. <laughs> oh, this is a song about drug abuse and overdosing. Isn't um, that what that show was about? <laughs> it was about <laughs> drugs, but yeah. uh, oh, what a great song. Um, uh, this may be the weakest song on the album. Oh, I disagree I, with I, that. I think that the sonically, I love it. I just love the way that it. Uh, Another even if you're really to, cool beginning. Yeah, you another know, just really, really cool. cool not a lot of songs begin like that. Um, well, and then just the way that the drums come in, it, it comes in on a weird beat too. Just the way that it comes, it's it's bizarre. Uh, it's very interesting. Bono's voice drives me bonkers on this one. This I love his, one. I love his voice on this. It's What's very earnest. <laughs> it is very earnest. Is this the one with all the breathing? Yeah, no, that's unforgettable fire that has the breathing in it. Well, this has some breathing in it, and it's got that oh. kiss. <sighs> And he does all that stuff and he goes, oh, yeah. all right, just keep me going. Like, it's, what, what the hell is it? What is that? Uh, all right, I'll, just keep me going now. In, and then whatever he's saying at the end, that just drives me nuts. I, I can't tell what he's doing. It, there's a chorus, there's a pre-chorus, and yeah. there's the verses. But this guy, it's like tunes. He's one of the greatest melody makers there is. And he, mm-hmm. he just, I don't know how he writes. I, that's what I was researching. I couldn't find it. It sounds like music written on a piano rather than a guitar, but yeah. I suspect he's standing in a staircase somewhere with a tape recorder in his hand, making up these tunes with his voice and then later figuring out what to do with them. But yeah. these are not simple. These are there may be only two chords on some of these songs, but they're not yeah. simple melodies. He's no, they're not. That's I yeah. think one of the things that makes you you two, one of the biggest bands in history is Bono's ability to make melodies. Yeah. And, and, and Jam, I think, I mean, I, I, I understand what you're saying about Bono's voice, but I, the music on this song in particular is so great. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with, I mean, just the, the way that the instruments are playing the bass, the bass is almost making chords well, throughout the whole thing. It's even, really even cool. the edges yeah. that staccato guitar playing yeah. is just great. Yeah. Suspicious yeah. of that guitar. Are you? Uh, is Brian, you know, or uh, I mean, is Inwa, <laughs> is he saying, Inwa okay, do this. okay, do this. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this seems like a leap in sophistication to me. Well, well man, just you might a, be right, but it's you might it's, be, and I don't, I'm not sure he's doing all the guitar work because I know Lanois played some of the guitar on this, but just the layers of guitar on this song are just amazing. It um, is, and, and I don't disagree like, with you, JM Bono. Uh, you heard that saying, uh, out in front of your skis, yeah, but Bono's out in front of his voice on this, yeah, and uh, he's, disagree, he's trying to do things that are very difficult. And he's he's not there yet, but this is what makes him eventually able to do those things, in my opinion. Yeah, I disagree I, with both you guys. I think his voice is fine on this song. I think sometimes this is uh, I'm not, not to do, uh, go on too big of a detour, but one of the things about Bono's voice always just he does some amazing. I'll, I'll say he does some some good stuff with his voice, but sometimes his he the way that he wants to deliver songs kind of drives me crazy. So for instance, that song one off of Octung Baby, I think yeah. it's a fine song. That lyrics on that, but the way that when Bono sings it, it, it just kind of, I don't know. It's, it, there's something about his voice that loses me. That song is a great song, lyric-wise. I had no idea how good that song is until I heard Johnny Cash do it. 
like, man, this is actually a good song. <laughs> and, well, is it know, Johnny is it, Cash doesn't try to do some of the same things uh, Bono yeah. does. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'll agree with you guys that he tends to, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll backtrack Doug and say, I can see the ahead of his voice type of thing. He does. He does. Um, I don't know. He's, it's this, he's a limited singer and, he, but yeah. he does good. But what he, he, again, as I was saying earlier, they know they are, to me, they are the best at embracing their limitations to me, that's, he loses that's where it on you this know, one. If, if we uh, go down into the history books, one of the themes from this podcast will be um, I'm fine with all three of the other guys embracing their limitations. But I think one of the personality qualities that makes Bono Bono is that he has no interest in any talk of his limitations whatsoever. I don't think yeah. I think he may be assumed they exist theoretically. And I'm talking about the Bono of this age. I'm not talking about now. Nowadays. I'm sure he's able to look back at himself and laugh like I do. No, 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 Doug. It's not Bono. It's God. He just thinks he's Bono. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, but I will say, regardless of any of that stuff, I, I'd love this song. I love everything well, I th- about I it. I think it is fascinating. It, I think it's a fascinating Especially song. after Pride. Because yeah. yeah. Pride, you get this nice little package, and it's a good song. But this yeah. thing breaks out. And it's going all over the place with, yeah. I don't, I don't know where the, it's got a lot of energy and I don't, there's a lot of things happening here. And I wish I could have been in the room and <laughs> recording it to see yeah, me too. who's telling yeah. who, what, and yeah. who's playing yeah. what. Yeah. Okay. Up next, after that controversial episode, we move on to Unforgettable Fire. I'll go ahead and say it this is my favorite u2 song of all time well that's that's funny that's not this is not the one i would have picked but really? i i do not knock you for saying this because this is this song is so great <laughs> i remember the first time i heard this song my jaw dropped i just i i uh i mean i was wrecked for the rest of the day i just so you know, thought it was so beautiful um i'd love did how you, it starts did you off do anything I, well i didn't boohoo but i, I probably well, i was at school i think because then i didn't want to i didn't want anybody to see me cry so it's it's got a bit of a history um supposedly it was written during a demo session on the piano edge was playing the piano on a demo session oh. with jimmy destry from blondie oh uh, really yeah yeah <laughs> and uh and he didn't know what to do with the song and so he didn't know what to do lyrically or vocally so he just put it aside and then when they were working on this album he found a cassette recording with it and he decided to revisit it and then he and bono created this song arrangement with the edge playing a Yamaha DX seven synthesizer and Bono yeah. actually playing the bass and a drum machine uh, to fill in the beat. Huh. And they started uh, adding some chords and with an hour, they had a couple of sort verses things. And then yeah. once the other guys got on and knocked the rhythm section out, they, they actually yeah. all knew that this was going to be something pretty special. So. I just, man, when that, the way that it starts off like that first 30 seconds where it's just those, 
chiming guitars and that synthesizer doing, which I think is a DX7 doing that, da, na, 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 all that coming in and those, uh, the, the, guitar, the sounds the guitars making in addition to those well, digital delay sounds is just, it's got strings on it, which is something they didn't do the, on their first three albums. Yeah, um, the strings are just that I've never heard strings like that when they do that, uh, in the middle of the song where they do yeah. that. Oh man, when those strings just making, yeah, and then um, um, the, the pizzicata part on the strings, and then it does that uh, that scrape across the the violins, do that scrape well, across the strings. And I love there's this rhythmic bre- breathing throughout the entire yeah. song that yeah uh, uh, yeah uh, I I love I, that I think that's so great yeah um, yeah. I mean, this song is all atmosphere, but in such a great way, you know? Um, oh, yeah. And the well, drums. Whoever, whoever thought to bring those strings in, that was... The, the, this is brilliant. a pretty little top of the register strings. These are heavy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Heavy big cellos. Strings. Yeah. Yeah. Did, uh, the Edge also talks about how he hated, he was really struggling with the guitar on this song. So he detuned it and retuned it until he could find the notes that he liked by ear. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So if you watch him do it live, he uses a, a, he hardly ever hits a chord the whole song. He plays a, it's, it's one of those where I saw him do it live and I was blown away. It's the only time I've seen you two live was on this tour and he's playing just as first time I ever saw an Ebo live. So he's just, all he's doing is really just playing an Ebo and uh, doing some harmonics that, and uh, the rest of it, he's playing the piano on. We didn't we didn't talk about this when we talked about the name of the album, but since this is a title track, we can. Uh, this was inspired by um, an exhibit of artwork made by victims of the Hiroshima oh, right. bombing. That's right. Yeah, and they were, I guess, on tour for war in Chicago, and they saw the exhibit, and it kind of all as it would, you know, hit yeah. them in a way, and so yeah. uh, it inspired the title of the song and the title of the of the um, album. The album, yeah. There's no hint at all that that's what it's about. No, I know. Yeah. I know. Exactly. Uh, it hit number one in Ireland, which is interesting. Um, huh. it, it's, it is a fantastic song, and I don't begrudge you at all, Jam, for saying it's your favorite song in the album. It may be... Not only the favorite song on the album, my favorite U2 song of all it, time. It may, be, it may be, it may be, can I say this? It may be my favorite song. Well, I don't think it's the best song on the album. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm, that's your, we that's have your, a that's your heart talking. Sense. Yeah. That's the difference between your heart and your, your critic trading. Yeah. So. Anyway, uh, you know, I kind of focus on lyrics. And one thing that's really cool about the way Bono sings um, and his tunes is he never has to worry about rhyme. Yeah. He, yeah. he, he does. It's like he doesn't even think about it at all any more than T.S. Eliot does. Yeah. And he just throws his stuff out. I guess on an, that, maybe that's one of the things that makes, um, uh, pride stick out is he actually does rhyme some on well so and this and this this is a song that has that famous biblical image right about the mountains crumbling to the sea that's in yeah. a bazillion <laughs> rock and roll songs yeah but still just the way he delivers it uh just not a tear no not i just yeah all right we have a promenade me down i'd like in a spiral staircase to the higher ground. 
I like this song. Uh, it's more strings, um, more chiming guitars. Uh, more I really, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I like it. I like it. Barbed wire, <laughs> even though it sounds the opposite of barbed wire. Um, yeah. It. Uh, I read someplace someone described this as a dreamy vignette. I think it's a perfect yeah. description. I think it's that's a perfect description of it. Yeah. I don't yeah. even know if they have barbed wire in Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> I wish uh, um, some of these Irish people would disabuse of, of all our uh, ideas of Ireland. Bad notions of Ireland. Yeah. Um, Larry Mullen using brushes on this. Yeah. Is, I mean, this song is almost delicate the way that it, it's. Uh, and I love Rono's voice on this one. I do too. It's this fantastic. Is, this is probably my favorite, his favorite. I don't know. Unforgettable Fire, his vocal performance is great, but I really like his voice on this song. I think it really almost makes the song even. Um, just, I, I'm just thinking about, this is one of the songs that, always, again, not to sound goofy or whatever, but always hits me when I'm sitting in the cold yeah. and I'm listening to this. This song just, you know, it's perfect yeah. for that. <laughs> I mean, his his voice is, is almost breaking on, on some of these. Um, well, his voice breaks a lot. Right? He breaks in the falsetto quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is so funny about you too. Is I imagine you're Tony, it's a cold day, it's a wet day, and you're sitting on your staircase looking out into the into the gray day. Your feelings are bubbling all over the place while you listen to this song, and you're being really deep and meaningful. And nobody can tell me what the song's about, but it's still meaningful. <laughs> well, again, I think um, because these, uh, particularly on this song or this album, these songs are so atmospheric. It's really, um, it's almost like they don't matter to a certain extent. I, I agree with that hundred percent. I agree with In that. In fact, yeah. um, I think it's like the Latin mass. Ah, and this is this is funny. I've never thought of that until just now. But one of the arguments about turning the uh, Latin mass into English as the uh, beautiful book of common prayer used by the Anglican church did was the argument against it was you're going to interrupt the prayers of the congregation, the hmm. private uh, discourse they're having with God during the mass if they have to hear words that they know. And uh, I always thought that was really interesting because I could I could imagine uh, you would be free from the the particular meaning of any of the words during the mass if you didn't understand them and you could have your own communication with God during that. Mm -hmm. And I think U2's music's like that in that none of these words are going to compel you to start thinking about what Bono's writing about. You're free yeah. to uh, meditate and go on your own uh, journey with and, with these great tunes and the and the atmosphere and, they create and in a way that makes the songs really universal in it a does. way that they wouldn't be otherwise because yeah. it can mean whatever the hell you want it to mean and yep. if the guy next to you doesn't agree with you then he can be wrong yeah yep <laughs> now we have the fourth of july And thank you, Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is this actually has this is all, you know. Yeah, this actually has a history. Um, 
when this was one of the first things that they, I think this is one of the first things they recorded. It's actually the edge and Adam Clayton just fooling around. They were just tooling around trying to get, uh, Eno was like saying, Hey guys, just try to you know, just mess around for a little while. Try to get your, your sound down. And so Adam Clayton started playing that baseline that's prominent through this whole thing. And the edge just started making guitar sound. He wasn't actually playing any chords or anything. He was just making sounds. Eno surreptitiously started recording them. So they had no idea what, that they, they were actually recording. And then Eno kind of kept it. And then he started, Eno added some treatments to it. He started adding some, he played his DX7 to it and started adding all sorts of different uh, sounds to it. And then he played it back for the guys and they liked it. I found this song really interesting. Uh, sonically, I like the way that the guitars chime in and out through it and uh, just some of the the weird atmospherics it, that are going it, on it fits it fits the album i mean it's yeah. it's uh it, it's not remarkable to me by any way in any means no. but it fits the album sonically perfectly you know yeah yeah i mean like i said earlier Eno is the i think he is the uh best at capturing spontaneity and then doing something with it it never sounds out of control you know the spontaneous but you know Eno is famous for um trying to make people do things spontaneously uh that's in the funny studio. that's a yeah, funny concept see. make well, somebody see. do something spontaneously <laughs> <laughs> well he, he he has a bunch of diff, different tricks that he uses like he'll uh, have a whiteboard up and say All right play e here now change and you know go to a flat that really doesn't really make a whole lot of sense but or g sharp i should say um but yeah just he just to do something different just to get him to do think different things. And um, that's what he was trying to do here. And he just happened to capture him. Just tooling around. Named 4th of July after somebody's daughter because she was born on the 4th of July. Oh. Uh, and uh, I don't know whose daughter it is, but it's, uh, it's Bono's goddaughter. Oh. Well, then we know it's not his daughter unless he's yes, also we can her godfather as well. We can eliminate that one. Our fans in Ireland can call us up and correct us <laughs> on that, too. All right. Here's a big one. I think bad. If I could, yes, I would. If I could, I would let it go. To me, this is the best thing this band ever did. This song. It's not necessarily my favorite song of theirs, but this song is um to me, this is you this song is you too for me. This is um my second favorite song on the album, and it is in my probably in my top three favorite U2 songs. I, I love this song. Um, I, do, I do too. There's nothing not to love about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, do do y'all like the bird calls? Yes. I love everything <laughs> about this song. Everything about it. What, what you know, and it's, are they doing? I, I can't tell if it's an owl or a dove. <laughs> I think it's an owl. It's about a song about heroin addiction, just like Wire was. Um, yeah. And uh, it's uh, Bono said in an 87 concert that it's about a friend of theirs who died, who's killing himself. Um, mm -hmm. And uh you know, so I, I think this is one of the songs where the the 
protagonist changes from time to time, at least of who the song is about, depending on who, who Bono is talking to. But it is gen- generally about the horrors of, of heroin addiction. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, of course, famously a 12-minute version of the song that they played at Live Aid. All it is is almost two chords. There's one, there's a different chord, I think, when they, uh, during the chorus, but almost the whole song is nothing but two chords and never have, and I don't know, it's just, it's uh, well, never have two chords been more interesting <laughs> to me in my <laughs> It evidently started off as a jam session where the edge was like improvising a jam session and they yeah. hit the guitar riff and supposedly they finished the song in three takes. Oh, like bam, I, bam, bam. I, I think this is probably how Bono writes. I think he almost speaks in melodies. They just ooze out of him. And and this is another one of those songs where his, uh, you know, he's got that kind of over emotional delivery when he's singing it, but it Mm -hmm. it it works so well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It really does. He does. He's great. I mean, I remember seeing this in concert and just, they did like the 12 minute version when I saw it. The live version of the song is fantastic. It's yeah. fantastic. Um, oh, the ways those those uh, synth- that synthesizer that begins it that comes in that um, arpeggiated synthesizer. I, I love and that's, that. That's that's uh, Brian Eno, I think, yeah. did that. Yeah, that's Eno who came up with that. And one of the ways you can tell this is a U two song is it's on a U two album. <laughs> that's one way. I was thinking of another one. <laughs> okay, uh, it's it is wide open for a guitar solo. It. <laughs> any other band in the entire world would have yeah. a big juicy guitar solo in it yeah and yeah youtube he, really doesn't do guitar solos no, no. it's, it's a bit i love that i think i guess you could call it a solo that is in this it's just kind of a all he does is it just has a voice solo. Chords. yeah yeah <laughs> how's that good you know, <laughs> the i saw the edge interviewed and he talked about how much he likes uh guitar players that support the song rather than the flashy ones that oh that sounds uh, like somebody else i've heard it does sound like someone else and a very wise person anyway this is bad and bad is good bad is good yep definitely up next we have a uh we take a, a different departure here um indian summer sky So we've we've been here before too. Do you want to know what this song has in common with Boston? Uh, it was recorded in a basement. No, I, guess I have a, no idea. It's a, it's a fade in. I mean, how many oh, songs yeah, actually yeah. fade Got in like this? Fades in. That's right. Yeah. And we discovered how uncommon that is. It's uncommon. Yeah. Uh, what kind of Indian summer sky are we talking about? <laughs> I is can't. Is this the subcontinent, or is this the uh, Native Americans? Well, I'm guessing it's Native Americans, considering. Uh, yeah, a lot of the, of the songs on this, this album. album. Yeah, the album seems to be about a trip to United States, even though it's very obfuscated. Other than the um, titles, love the bass in the song. I do too, and I really like those backup vocals that are doing that. I think I'm I'm guessing that's Eno. That sounds very much like Eno's voice. 
and this is that. a prime example of the edge adding texture to a song yeah the thing yeah. he does so well this song in particular yeah and we have the ocean cuts rings deep the sky like there <laughs> i don't know why in the forest there's a clearing i run toward the light sky it's a blue sky and I do it's, like this album, it, but I got to tell you that me, uh, the read the lyrics out loud by yourself at the kitchen table. You can't test. Look, not this does not pass that test. You can do that with the first Zeppelin album as well. It's not. It's all the vocals. Jam, you've got what? all the recordings there. Put <laughs> on there. Uh, pull up the recording where I said Zeppelin does good lyrics. <laughs> I, I, That's yeah, not what I'm I think saying. That, my point, oh. my point was real quick, Jam. My point is that it, do, it doesn't matter when you're doing stuff like this. Just like yeah, it doesn't I, I'm going to go on Tony that first on this album. Well, it, to I me, agree. it's more. I'm, I'm not disagreeing. I just wish it was a different language that I so I can assume <laughs> they're saying something that makes sense. I mean, it's just it's more to bring out. Uh, it's it's not to make you think about anything. It's more to. Make you, <laughs> it's it's not for it's, communication. It's, it's well, it's more for you know communicating it's, it's emotion. part of the text it's part of the te- exactly it's part of the yeah, emotional texture right. of the song it's yeah. a word picture that describes yeah. nothing <laughs> in the earth <laughs> oh god <laughs> yeah. in the earth the whole deep deep decide if i could i would up for air to swim against now, the tide now right, again right. speaking of them they sound downright goofy but when yeah. he's singing them they sound fantastic that's his that's what that's his gift <laughs> that is and i gift. think that changes in the next album you think I, I think it starts making more sense in the next album well i, I know too, i know you're not the biggest fan of michael stipe but that's something he did very well as well was yeah, yeah. kind of conjuring sense. up uh well lyrics. there's guys that can really do that like richard butler the psychedelic furs never makes a damn bit of sense but he is so good at kind of conjuring up an emotion yep uh, Anyway, I just I was just having a little fun with the fact that uh, these songs don't mean anything. And then we have Elvis Presley and America. This has got oh. a, a bit of an interesting history to it. Um, really? Yeah, it's a, it, it, it's, it takes its instrumentation from a slowed down backing track of a sort of homecoming. Is uh, that right? Yeah, Daniel and Lossity was getting frustrated while he was mixing the song, so he slowed it down. And then the vocals are a result of Eno uh, telling Bono to sing, just make up lyrics about the Albert Goldman Elvis biography he just read. He was so incensed by this Albert Goldman Elvis biography. Been, <laughs> I guess was ranting about it. Eno's like, why don't you put it over a song? And so huh. that's where this came from. Anyway, it's kind of an in- interesting that I'm always fascinated when a, a band or a musician will do something odd to a song that's art mm-hmm. that they're working on and it inspires them to do something else, which is what the case was here. Well, I mean, the I love the drums on this. I love how they come in and then um, uh, that that acoustic guitar that's all through it. Yeah, it's one of the few times a, I guess. Yeah, one of the yeah. few times he ever plays acoustic guitar, and it's it's pretty neat. 
a nice drum in there. I guess it's a 12 string acoustic and I'm sure he's having some help from Lanois and a couple of parts here, but yeah. Like y'all notice, I didn't uh, say that I listened to Britney Spears. Tell us uh, who Elvis is. (laughs) (laughs) Is Elvis is the guy that wasn't Buddy Holly, who was the real master. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Not, not to mention he, Elvis is not a Texan. Well, then we get on to uh, MLK some more. Sleep, sleep tonight, and may your dreams be realized. I love the fact that this is the last song on the album. I think yeah. is. Um, perfect it's a very it's a very fitting ending um, perfect and i like eno's i mean uh, uh i like uh i like bono's voice on this they both um, didn't know yeah <laughs> <laughs> um that, that humming synthesizer that's yeah that kind of tr- it's almost sounds like a church organ kind of just hitting it, a chord sounds, underneath it you know yeah i don't know I, I i kind of thought it was like a men's choir the the I mean, it, baritones and the men's choir just humming i mean yeah it's all i mean this without that the song is acapella right essentially yeah. yeah yeah and it's got that sheen there's kind of a staticky sheen yeah and it um just yeah it's very very nice I, even though some of the he says rain down on he yeah it's a little odd that drives me martin luther king i'm guessing yeah, it is about. it is martin luther king um the uh this song should be about 30 minutes long and it should be available for people to put on before they go to sleep with a sleep timer. It's just too short for that right now, but it it would be wonderful. um, Lullaby. Well, you get, this is uh, sounds like something that came off that atmospheres and soundtrack. That Apollo's uh, with, album with uh, with without uh, you take Bono's voice off. Yeah, yeah, it's just that. Oh, uh, you take Bono's voice off of it, and I don't want to listen to it. Oh, really, I would listen uh, to it without his voice. I would listen. I, that's I, not I, a complaint. I'm not complaining about what he's doing. Yeah, but it does sound stacking. like uh, those Brian Eno uh, atmospheric albums that uh, help me get all my studying and work done. <laughs> It's a wonderful it's ending for, for a very good album. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think it's perfect. It's a perfect yeah. ending. Yeah. Just don't read the lyrics out loud. <laughs> <laughs> that's my only bit of advice. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's that's 1984. What comes next for you two after this record? The Joshua Tree. Well, they do the EP. Well, yeah, Wide Awake in America. Yeah, 
yeah, Joshua Tree was a monster. It was the first of five number one albums for this band. Really? This band, how long were they the number one band in the world? I, I, uh, a, a good, good run. A good, I want to say uh, mid 80s to early 90s. Uh, maybe mid nineties. I, I think there was, I mean, I, I, I scoff at this, but I think there were people talking about that. These guys were like the Beatles, you know? Yeah. Um, I think they, to me, this band has just, they are, they're restless. They, they don't ever want to repeat themselves. And that's, they've kind of gotten out over their skis a, a couple of times, I think, but, you know, but they have embraced so many different genres. It seems like they, you know, they, I'm thinking of, um, house they've done like house music they've done disco on what was that album that they did um like in the mid 80s Zuropa? Or, oh. yeah no big the uh mid 90s the one that came after zuropa i mean zuropa i don't know is, i lost i lost after rattle and hum i was not interested in this band at all anymore really uh, yeah. zuropa <laughs> my favorite album of theirs is is zuropa Again, I don't think it has as good of songs as this one, but it's also the one where they really collaborated, you know, kind of took over. And so did that other guy, Flood, that you became their engineer. At that point, the only thing I really liked was that Johnny Cash song that they did uh, that he sings on. But I wasn't interested in anything else. So, you know, I haven't really gone back and listened to it. I, I imagine I still would have some issues with that early 90s U2 stuff. But so, yeah, so you have Octung Baby came out in 1991. And that probably, to me, that has some of their best songs on it. Uh, cohesively, it's, it's uh, you know, I've got. What got was the one. hit on that album? Uh, one was a pretty big hit. Well, one's a good um, song. Yeah. The Fly, I think. is. Ugh. I love that song. Oh. I absolutely love that song. I've I've got this strangest relationship with Bono where uh he reminds me so much of my ridiculous self um when I was in high school and college that it's hard for me. And he's done some of the most preposterous things anybody's ever seen. And at the same time, he's done <laughs> more more good work than probably any other rock star. And uh I came face to face with uh he said one of the most profound things I ever heard in an interview when he was defending Christianity against some cynical reporter. And the reporter was talking about how all religions are the same and so wonderful. And then, and uh, he was talking about the uh, ethics of um, karma. And Bono stopped him in his tracks and he said, don't you understand that Christ came to take karma out of the world? which to me was one of the most profound statements I ever heard. And I had to reassess everything about my feelings on Bono. And well, you know, got to answer a question for me. Right. Is he, he's still married to the, uh, the same woman. <laughs> yeah. This high school sweetheart. Yeah. Still married um, to his high school sweetheart. I can't tell you how uh, impressive I think that is given the temptations he must have faced. 
Yeah. Well, maybe it was hit that no bathing deal. That might have been her idea. <laughs> While you're on the road, honey, I've got this idea. <laughs> well, I, I read an I read a, a interview with him where he was talking about uh, this was later on. He was talking about his relationship with certain people that would that that others would find odd, uh, mainly George W. Bush. And and he says this. He says, "In my teens, I uh, even I'm a protester by nature. In the undoing of my black and white view of things as a young man, were things like when people just didn't behave as caricatures, and I'd been told I had been told they were. I just had a lot of surprises. People whom I thought would be total jerks turned out to have humanity, and people I thought would be very inspirational let me down. And he, yeah. he was talking about because this guy was trying to get him to you know badmouth." bush and he's like i can't do it because i've sat down with this guy i've talked to this guy i've seen seen this you know i've had it and i just thought that was interesting whether you like bush or not i thought it was interesting that a guy who it was very easy very easy for this guy to take a different route is was able to say you know what people aren't black and white there's they're not two-dimensional and and we need to be better about understanding that the only reason i'm bringing that up is because i think there's a lot of that two-dimensional black and white BS that makes the world a very difficult place currently. I agree with that. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's kind of like uh, Bono taking a giant step away from the war album when he adopts that opinion. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. I mean, everybody goes through that process where they find out the line between good and evil isn't between right. people, but goes right down their center. And, I, and, and I'm not, and I'm not leaning towards one side or another. When I say that, I think there's uh, I think both, both sides of the fence need to be a little bit better at understanding that um, with few exceptions, people aren't two dimensional. No, and and everybody, the bad guy is you too. Oh, see what I did there. (laughs) Very nice. I I think, I think uh, the arc of personality development of Bono is, is fascinating. Well, as everybody knows, one of the things that we always do here is uh, we give our personal rating. We first give a rating as a cold-hearted critic, and we then give a rating uh, with our heart, with the with the part of us that doesn't care what somebody's words are, but feels what they're saying. And I'm, of course, going to start with JM since this is not his pick. We'll go to Tony last since he's the picker. Okay. JM, All right. As a cold-hearted critic. As a cold-hearted critic, I'm going to give this album a four-three. Um, I think it's a very, very good album. I think if, I, but I know that they have done probably better things um, after this that uh, deserve more critical praise. Um, production work is 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 outstanding. But uh, I think some of the songs could probably, as we were kind of saying, they sound almost like sketches and not full-fledged songs. So I think that's, as a critic, that's how I would knock it. As a sensitive new age guy. As a sensitive new age guy, um, I'm going to give it a, a four, eight. One of the things I love about this album is that it seems like the band is surprising themselves anytime a band is surprising themselves and it's they seem like they're surprising themselves that's almost always going to make for a good album and i don't think that the band has ever surprised themselves more than they did on this album so it's an absolute joy uh hearing them 
perform and just hearing this album because it just sounds like they're just so much of them that is being brought out and they're just having uh, just excited by the whole the whole process so i'm going to give it a four eight um i can't really think why i would detract from it except for maybe bono's voice on the on wire but other than that it's four eight for me all right well i'm gonna go ahead and turn to myself uh my favorite subject on this podcast and ask myself <laughs> about my cold-hearted critic uh opinion i'm gonna give it a four three uh I think there are a lot of flaws on this album, but there are some remarkable things on this album. One of which is they're inventing something very new uh, with this album. This I, I wish I could take everybody back to 1984 when this came out and uh, you'd be able to realize that there's nothing else like this out there. This is something brand new. And uh, the other the other thing that I make, I, I think, I think the production on this album is really good. I think that Bono's amazing ability to come up with uh, melodies that are not like anything else. And he comes up with them abundantly. He reminds me of Paul McCartney with that ability. Um, that's, uh, that's my cold hearted critic as a uh, sensitive new age guy with a heart. I would go up to a four or five just because this, this album appeals to me the same way. I think it appeals to everybody else and that it's so evocative of meditation and feelings, uh, that other, other artists just don't provide. Um, it's, it's really exceptional in that regard. And I can forgive all of the shortcomings in this album with with the uh, because of that. Tony, I'm tell you what, curious you with <laughs> your opinion on this album. Well, so um, I don't know. I, I I feel like thinking critically about this as a critic. Um, I try to put myself in what the person's mindset would have been when they heard it the first time, but then also thinking about it in terms of the larger discography of the band. I think I'd give it a 4-0 in that regard as a critic because it was so it, it again, as you said, it's, it's it sounds like nothing else out there when it came out, but it also sounds like nothing else that they did. Um, in a lot of ways, you would think, well, maybe that makes it stand out. And it does, but I think I think crit, uh, critically, there's some things about this that as as we talked about um earlier that that aren't fully realized until the next album. Um, even though I like this album better than the next album. Um, so I'd give it a 4-0. Um, I was going to go 4-5, but I don't want to give a lower score than Jam. So I'm going to go 4-8 on my pick. <laughs> um, only because only because I this is my favorite U2 album. I, I was thinking about this. I wonder if it's because I'm such a Floyd fan that the that, that as atmospheric as this album is, is yeah. why I like it so much. Could be. Um, because it's it's it really is a bunch of soundscapes and and uh and kind of sonic stuff going on that it it's not pop music you know mm -mm. um and uh and it and 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 to speak on something you said Doug I think it gives it an air of deep emotional resonance that maybe it doesn't deserve I don't know um or maybe it does because of that uh 
it, it's it's weird, but um, it is the only album in their discography that I listen to on a regular basis. That's not to knock anything else, but it's the only one I listen to. It's the only one that's kind of tied to a a, a ritual <laughs> in a weird way. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to say something about that ritual. I I completely one hundred percent understand the the winter deal that mm-hmm. you got going. The only thing I would add is I don't think it would work for me on a winter day where it was clear skies. Yeah. Uh, well, I usually do it at night. So oh, okay. clear skies are nothing. It's yeah. usually at nighttime. Um, I used to I used to add to it when I lived in Fort Worth. I would drive up to the highest point, which there weren't a whole lot in Fort Worth, and sit in my car and listen to it on cassette. So uh-huh. uh, I'm probably giving away too much about my nerdiness. But uh, <laughs> I, I think this is a remarkable album from a remarkable band um, yeah. that, uh, again, while it doesn't necessarily represent them hitting on – at their peak at all cylinders, it represents to me the thing that make made them the most um, appealing to me, if you will. Yeah. So I, I think four eight works well. It's not quite a five. I think Pride knocks to me. Not that the song's bad, but including in this album knocks it down from a five. Otherwise, if I don't know what you could add to it, I think taking it off, you'd need another song to replace it to make it a five. I don't know what it'd be though. Wonderful album. Enjoyed getting reacquainted with it. Yeah, and and getting re I got reacquainted with their old discography too. Like I said, I'd listened to a lot of that other U two stuff for probably two decades. It was great. Yeah, I did the same thing. I had to uh, try to sharpen my opinion on what was the change between the first three and this album that that stood out the most. Tony, we got a lot of people out there who are dying to hear about <laughs> some new music. They are so tired. <laughs> of what they've been fed by the radio station. They're looking for something authentic and new. And of course, that's why we uh, come to you. Well, and this, uh, and this is, they're not going to hear on the radio, but you can easily find it elsewhere. I'm going to talk about an album called watching the kid come back by Robert Harrison. It was released uh, last July, I think sometime in the summer, maybe June of 2021. Uh, Robert Harrison is the lead singer and main songwriter for a band called Cotton Mather, which uh, for those of you who live in Austin who pay any attention to the local music scene is a power pop band that uh, has been around kicking around Austin since the early nineties. Um, they actually got a bit of fame for an album that I, we will talk about at some point called Contiki that was released in, I think in 96. Uh, they, they actually, uh, that album, they caught the attention of Oasis and they opened for Oasis in the UK and were much bigger in the UK than unfortunately they were ever in the States, which is a crime. But anyway, Robert Harrison has been, uh, they've been releasing cotton management, releasing a couple albums, over the last uh, decade or so, but he released a solo album called watching the kid come back. And, uh, and it's really great. He play, plays everything on it um, with the exception of a couple of tracks. Um, standouts on it are a song called great Auk stories. One trailing off will set the others free. I miss you out this window as they cross the winter sky In my days of great ox stories um, There's a song called Face in the Crowd and the title track. Those are both really great. And it also includes a cover of the Supreme song 
someday we'll be together, which I think is very poignant considering that we're, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of times over the last couple of years where we have not been able to be together. So um, I think it's a good choice for a cover. Um, anyway, I, I recommend it. It's a, it's a really, it's a good album. It's much more, um, let's say it's much more uh, um, personal sounding than a Cotton Mather record, mainly because it's a solo album. I think that makes sense, but well worth uh, trying, uh, seeking it out, watching the kid come back by Robert Harrison. Thank you, Tony. Sure. I look forward to looking that one up. Uh, I want to say a few thank yous out there. Um, one of the groups I would like to thank are our Canadian listeners. I don't know if y'all realize this or not, but you make up a, an, an extraordinary block of listeners. Um, we got <laughs> folks in Alberta, Winnipeg, Edmonton, Toronto, are uh, some of our leading cities. Actually, all of those Canadian cities beat everyone outside of Austin and Houston, Texas, in the last huh. uh, five episodes. They even oh. beat San Angelo, J.M., your own hometown. Can you believe that? That's unbelievable. They beat What's Dallas. What's going on out there? Y'all oh. ever seen Dallas from a D.C. 9 at night? <laughs> ah, a great anyway, song. Anyway, you know, it's sight. coming up. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you, Canada. And we have Kyoto, Kyoto. We obviously have one listener there, and we appreciate <laughs> you uh, very much. Uh, so thank you all those of you who are from all over the world, Fresno, California. It looks like we have one listener there. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. We appreciate it very much. And, uh, the big thing I would like to remind you is that we would love to hear you, uh, Jam, why don't you close us out and tell these people how they can get in touch with us. All right, everyone. So that's our look at the, uh, unforgettable fire by you two. And yes, as Doug was alluding to, um, you can let us know what you think about this album on our website, tappingvinyl.com. You can uh, drop us a note there, and you can also find out more information about the albums that we talk about and uh, the recommendations that we have. You'll also find all sorts of good stuff up there, uh, uh, different outtakes of songs, um, photos, video interviews. So uh, it's being constantly updated. So, uh, go up there often. You can re also reach us at, uh, via Twitter at tapping vinyl. And we have a Facebook group page that you can look up next week. We're going to be looking at an album from the 1990s by a guy known more for a seventies output harvest moon by Neil Young. But there's a full moon. For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, this is Vinyl Tap for all the podcasts go to 11. You know it's time to go. I got a little brief aside that I want to tell about I Will Follow because this is uh, just another reason why this this band in particular has a bit of a soft spot for me. So uh, <laughs> my senior prom, um, 
I went with a very lovely young lady who I will not say just in case for some reason she stumbles upon this podcast. Um, and well, if, uh, if your wife's out of uh, she, prison, oh, my, wife comes out. my wife doesn't care. <laughs> um, she ended up foregoing leaving the dance with me uh, for various reasons. Uh, uh, least of not was the fact that I jumped up on stage and sang, I will follow with the band. <laughs> Uh, that was performing, which I, I, I guess, even though she didn't say it to me, just embarrassed the hell out of her. So she, yeah. uh, she didn't want anything to do with me. Um, I don't think I was the only guy on stage singing it. I don't remember. Another reason she didn't want to go with me is I, uh, I was in a state where I didn't remember much of what was going on as well. <laughs> but, uh, but yes. Boy, October War era. I want to tell you all the. Uh, a little bit about how I discovered this band and my ambivalence towards them. Uh, so there was a guy in my high school that started preaching uh, boy in October and just telling everybody that had to listen to it. So we all went out and got boy in October and we all went crazy for you too. And uh, a funny thing is uh, I think it was the October tour but he wrote them a letter and he said, y'all can stay at my lake house when you come to Austin on your, uh, <laughs> on your tour. And they said, okay, but you can't tell anybody we were here till we're gone. So he shows up at, uh, after the concert, he shows up at the high school with all these pictures of him with you two. Hanging oh, wow. Out of, oh, wow. of course really that cool. they were not the monster band they became after, yeah. uh, the album we're talking about, but it was still yeah. pretty cool deal. The, the they, I, I guess their largest so hit before cool. the biggest hit before this was war. Yeah. And was, uh, they had that preposterous uh, uh, video for war. Um, was it war or was sun, it uh, sun, uh, Sunday bloody Sunday? Sunday. Bloody Sunday. Oh, I, was, I was thinking of um, New Year's Day with oh, yeah, all Year's of them Day, yeah. running around on horses with their white flags. I used to think <laughs> that was so cool when I was in high school. And now I, I it wasn't long ago that I saw I it. Was I was just good. cracking up thinking about my stupid self <laughs> where'd doug go i was not I'm, i was not uh i'm not used to hearing y'all not talk uh that was weird we'll have to save that for an outtake because it happens so <laughs> seldom i'm surprised jam didn't throw some stuff in about a producer while we were doing that <laughs> or i could throw in some mundane crap about history <laughs> Well, I, uh, Albert Goldman is kind of a hatchet job guy. I think that's yeah. that that guy's uh, most of his. I think he wrote a, a similar type of book about Lenin. Well, they he did just, one on Dylan too, didn't he? Yeah, they're just they're not. I don't I don't think they're. I they're, think they're more tabloid than anything else. Yeah, uh, they're not. I think he like is gotten busted for digging through people's trash and stuff. Yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I here's there is I'm going to throw myself under the bus. So I saw them on the Joshua Tree tour. They played the Tarrant County Convention Center in November of '87. Hmm. The band hey, that's, or, uh, that's Fort Worth, Texas. That's in Fort Worth, know. Texas. Um, a couple of things I was not aware of, and this is why I'm throwing myself under the bus. BB King opened for him. I may have known that in '87 and just wasn't interested, so I didn't go. Uh, but, <laughs> but the moment in the um, in the Ramblin' Hun film where they're playing with him on stage is from that freaking concert. I went to oh, really? and I don't remember it at all. Really? At all. No. 
I course, did what I was, did, what love came to town. Of course, that was also a time in my life where I, I didn't understand that going to a concert um, uh, under the influence was a bad thing uh, <laughs> because I would leave the concert and then go and then try to happen? conjure up yeah, images yeah. and go, oh, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. So, yeah, um, yeah. but yeah, it's just weird that I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of any of that um, until recently. Yeah. It's there's a problem with Vincent Price's face on top of a regular looking fly that didn't work very much.